Welcome to this presentation of First Baptist Church Logue. We're glad to have you joining us today. Our mission at FBC Logue is to bring glory to God by being disciple makers. For that purpose, we present the following resource that it may be a blessing. All right, well, I mentioned last week that our next series, our next study, is going to be going through the book of Genesis. So grab a Bible and go ahead and turn to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1, and in case you use one of our pew Bibles, you can find that on page 1. And as you're finding your place, uh, if you have been in church for any length of time at all, then you are probably familiar, or at least I hope that you are familiar, with our central message, which is that mankind is guilty of sin against God, and consequently we are deserving of eternal punishment in hell because of that. But out of love, God sent Jesus Christ to earth as a a substitutionary sacrifice as he gave his life for us on the cross. Jesus took the punishment that we deserve for our sin so that we could be spared from God's judgment. And in order to receive that salvation, we are called to turn from our sin in repentance and to place all of our trust in what Jesus has done to save us. There is nothing that we can do to earn our salvation. We must entrust ourselves completely to Jesus by faith. And so that's, that is the message of the church. But sometimes I wonder if we're not operating with, with some gaps in our understanding. Like we may know the main idea, but we're not entirely sure of, of where it came from or why it matters quite so much. Well, and to understand that, we need to go all the way back to the beginning, which brings us to the book of Genesis. Genesis is profoundly important. It's probably the most important book of the Old Testament because it's foundational. Literally everything else that happens in the Bible flows out of what happens in this book. And so if you want to understand the rest of the Bible correctly, then you have to understand what's going on in the book of Genesis. Uh, Beyond that, Genesis gives us answers to some of the biggest questions that humans have asked in all places at all times throughout history. Uh, Questions like, how did we get here? Does does life have any meaning? Is there a God? Why is the world so messed up? Is is human history moving somewhere? Is there a, a final destination? All of these questions are either answered or they begin to be answered in the book of Genesis. And so I'm excited for this new series. But while I'm excited, I'm also, I've, I've already shared with some of you, a little bit intimidated. Uh, Genesis is by far the most daunting book that we have covered in my time here so far. There is just so much information uh, to cover. And then beyond that, sometimes the storyline uh, can get kind of dark, it can be kind of confusing about what's going on here, why is this happening, which can make interpretation much more challenging. And not only that, but I think more than any other book in the entire Bible, Genesis raises 10,000 different questions that we simply can't answer, at least not definitively. We may be able to speculate on it, but there's no way of knowing for certain. And that bothers me because I don't like not having answers. 
But all of that uh, should make our Q&A times on Sunday nights very interesting, so I hope that you will join in on those. And so just to set the stage with a few introductory comments, Genesis is the first book of the Bible, but it's also the first of the first five books of the Bible, which, which together are known as the Pentateuch, and the Pentateuch is, is the, uh, the story of how the, the people of Israel came to be. Uh, the Pentateuch was written by Moses to record how the Israelites uh, came into existence and what God expected of them as his people. And so as we'll go through Genesis, we're frequently going to want to pause and ask ourselves, why is this piece of information so important? What was it about this that the ancient Israelites needed to know? And often the key to understanding what the text means for us will be wrapped up in, in understanding what it meant, why it was important for the original readers. So the book can be divided into two. Uh, The first part, which is chapters 1 through 11, uh, describe God's creation of the world, and and it talks about how everything goes wrong, explains how that happens. And then the second part, which is chapters 12 through 50, records the beginning of God's work to make all things right again uh, as he elects Abraham and his offspring to be his chosen people. And so I think we're going to cover the first part of Genesis between now and Advent, and then we'll have a a brief Advent series to take us through Christmas, and then we'll cover the second part of Genesis through the majority of next year. I think that's what we're going to do. That's at least the general game plan. Uh, But without further ado, because we have a lot of ground to cover this morning, let's get started with the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. Moses writes, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, Let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning, the first day. And so the book of Genesis begins literally in the beginning. The story of the universe and, and human life begins when God creates the heavens and the earth. And Moses describes the earth at first, in verse 2, as being without form and void which means that initially the world was desolate and uninhabitable. And it would seem that God created a giant mass of water. Water takes the form of whatever is containing it. And at this particular point, there's nothing containing it. So it's, it's formless and there's nothing living in or on it. And so it is completely void of any kind of life. In the second half of verse 2, we see that darkness was over the face of the deep. And that the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And that that expression of of hovering almost gives you a picture of a mother bird nesting, arranging things and and organizing things into an optimal living environment for her chicks. So the earth is uninhabitable at first, but God is at work shaping and developing it, which is what we see happening throughout the rest of the chapter. And so first in verse 3, God speaks. He calls for light to generate, and immediately the darkness is illuminated by light. God sees the light, and he judges it to be good. 
And that word good is important. It's going to be used to characterize God's work throughout the creation process. And it means something is good because it is, is beautiful or, or it is appropriate or it's fitting to the, the purpose that God has in mind. And so there was darkness and now there's light. And then we see that God separates the light from the darkness. He divides them from each other. And he calls the light day and he calls the darkness night. And Moses finishes this first section by saying that there was an evening and there was a morning, which completed the first day. So God has, has created the world in this primitive state, and he has spoken light into existence, and he's going to continue shaping the earth as we pick up again in verse 6. It says, And God said, Let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse, and it was so. And God called the expanse heaven, and there was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place, and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas, and God saw that it was good. And God said, Let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit, in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit, in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the third day. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. And let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. And let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth to rule over the day and over the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning, the fourth day. So on day two, God commands there to be uh, an expanse or, or a firmament, firmament, uh, firmament in the midst of the waters. And this is a, a structure or a space that separates uh, the waters, with some water remaining on the earth and some water going above into the expanse, which, which God calls heaven, according to the ESV. But it would be more helpful to identify this simply as the sky. And it's not entirely clear what the water above is referring to, uh, the, the water that is placed above the expanse. It's, it's usually identified with the clouds in the sky, although other people believe that, that initially uh, there was a large mass of water above the sky, which then comes into play later on in chapter 6 when we get to the flood. I'm not exactly sure what it's referring to, but whatever it was, on day 3 in verse 9, God calls all the waters under the expanse to be gathered together in one place and for dry land to appear, and it does. God calls the, the dry land earth or ground, and the waters surrounding it he calls the seas. Then in verse 11, God commands the earth to sprout vegetation, plants and fruit trees that will reproduce themselves through seeds, and it happens. 
The land that was previously just brown dirt is now decorated with green trees and colorful fruits and vegetables that are just ready to be enjoyed. And so now the earth as we know it is beginning to take shape. And again, God sees that it is good. Next on day four, in verse 14, God places lights in the expanse of the sky to distinguish the day from night. And these lights have a couple of different purposes. First, to be signs that mark time, and secondly, to give light to the earth so that it's never completely dark. We see that God creates the greater light, referring to the sun to rule the day, and he creates the lesser light, the moon, and the stars to provide light during the night. And we we know that that the heavenly bodies uh, are are used to to mark time. Uh, The cycle of of sunrise and sunset every day marks a 24-hour Uh, day period. The position of the earth in relation to the sun causes the seasons to change, unless you're in southeast Texas where it's just hot all the time. And then, of course, one trip of the earth around the sun equals one year. And and throughout the ancient world, the calendars were, were developed by watching the movement and the positions of the heavenly bodies, the sun, the moon, and the stars. And so God has now put everything in place for the earth to be able to support living creatures. And he's going to move on to fill the world with those living creatures as we pick up again, beginning in verse 20. It says, And God said, Let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures, and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm, according to their kinds, and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the waters in the seas, and let birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening, and there was morning, the fifth day. And God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things, and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and the livestock according to their kinds, and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant-yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, And every tree with seed in its fruit, you shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. 
And so picking up in verse 20, it is the fifth day, and now God commands for swarms of living creatures to fill the seas and for birds to fly through the expanse of the sky. And at his command, everything from the largest whale to to the, the smallest speck of phytoplankton is formed in the sea, and every kind of bird flies through the air. And again, God sees that it is good. In verse 22, God blesses these creatures and gives them the ability to procreate and to fill the earth according to their kinds. And then in a similar way, on the sixth day, God commands the earth to bring forth all of the land animals and the beasts of the field, and it happens just as he says. Then in verse 26, something different happens as God creates mankind. You'll notice that rather than commanding, let there be, or or, let the earth produce, instead God says, let us make. We're going to talk more about that expression in a few moments, but but the process of creation here is much more personal than, than the previous creation has been. And that's reflected all the more in the fact that God creates mankind in his own image and likeness. Now, image and likeness, as they're used in this particular context, are not really words that we use very often or at all today. Uh, But if you'll allow me to simplify a relatively complex study, uh, then I'll just say to you that image is a term of function and likeness is a term of relationship. Okay? Image is a term of function, and likeness is a term of relationship. As God's image bearers, people have been created to represent him on earth and to exercise dominion over the rest of creation on his behalf, as God explains in the second half of verse 26. And as those made in God's likeness, we have been created to have a personal relationship with God in a way that no other creature that was created Uh, is allowed to have. And so people, both male and female, as verse 27 emphasizes, were created to have a personal relationship with God and to exercise rule and dominion over the earth on his behalf. And I think we're going to see that in more detail uh, when we come back next week. But then in verse 28, God blesses mankind with the ability to procreate and to fill the earth and to exercise dominion over it. And then in verses 29 and 30, we find an interesting statement. Uh, God explains that all of the plants and fruits and vegetables have been created for people and animals to eat. And so originally, people and animals did not eat meat. Uh, They had the plants for food. In verse 31, God looks at everything he has made and he declares it to be very good. Not just good, but very good. And this, this emphasizes and, and communicates the fact that, this, that creation is exactly the way that he wants it to be. Everything in creation is now complete. And so at this point, the earth is inhabited with all kinds of living creatures that have everything that they need to, to procreate and to flourish in this world that God has made. And we'll finish out the, the creation story as we move into the first uh, couple verses of chapter 2. Moses writes, Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done 
in creation. And so after six days of progressively creating the world and everything in it, on the seventh day, God rested. Now, when we say that, we don't mean to indicate that God was tired or that he needed to recover in any way because God's omnipotent. And so all of this process was was completely effortless on his behalf in the the way that we would think of needing to rest. Uh, The word simply means to cease from a previous activity. And so after six days of creating and fashioning the world, God ceased from his work of creating. Uh, The job was complete, and so God rested. And consequently, verse 3 tells us that God blessed the seventh day and made it holy. He set it apart for his own purposes and gave it a special meaning. And that fact is going to come in later in the book of Exodus when the Lord gives Israel the Ten Commandments. It's the explanation for the Sabbath commandment. But with that, the first week of history comes to a close. And so in our passage this morning, we see how the world came into existence. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth and fashioned them into an ideal environment for human beings to be able to live in relationship with him as his image bearers. And the meaning of the text is is pretty straightforward. It's the implications of the text that we want to spend the remainder of our time considering. Uh, We could spend hours drawing out implications of of what Genesis 1 and through the first part of chapter 2 means, but uh, we will restrict ourselves perhaps to some of the more important ones. Uh, It's been pointed out that this opening passage of the Bible automatically rules out a a number of different uh, competing worldviews and philosophies. For example, Genesis 1 is opposed to polytheism, the belief in, in many different gods or goddesses. And in contrast to all of the other ancient religions and philosophies of the world, the Bible teaches that there is one true God who has created all things and that only he is worthy of worship. Genesis 1 is also opposed to pantheism, the belief that everything is God. And so contrary to New Age philosophy, the earth, the universe, is not divine. The universe was created by God, but it is not God. And so any attempts to worship or to connect with the divine essence of the world are misguided and even idolatrous. Genesis 1 is also opposed to to humanism, the the philosophy that emphasizes human achievement and self-actualization. And the fact is, the Bible makes it clear that life is not about us. We have been placed here by a creator for a specific purpose. So we have to understand that you are, are a creature. I am a creature. We, we do not have the authority to, to self-identify or, or to self-determine. We cannot define ourselves. Now, of course, you can go wherever you want. You can do whatever you want. But, but the point is that you will never find true, lasting satisfaction outside of God's divinely ordained purpose for your life, which is to be in a relationship with him, with his glory as your ultimate goal, not your own personal ambitions. And then perhaps most relevant to our own cultural moment, Genesis 1 stands opposed to atheism or evolution. And I'm I'm putting those two things together uh, because if you don't believe in God, then you have to explain our existence in some other way. 
And the prevailing theory uh, or explanation among atheists is evolution. And so obviously, Genesis 1 declares that there is a God who is responsible for creating the world that we live in. But beyond that, I want to say just a bit more here because of how much influence evolutionary theory has within our society. I think that one of the biggest challenges that particularly young Christians face in our society is how much our culture insists that science has disproven the Bible. There's there's no need to believe in God. In fact, you shouldn't believe in God because science has explained everything. It's simply taken for granted that the world came into existence somehow on its own and then gradually evolved over billions of years through a gradual process of of mutation and adaptation. It's pushed in the mainstream media, in schools, and it's simply assumed by most people. But while I'm not a scientist, that's not my area of expertise, I do know enough to know that there's not nearly as much substance or consensus behind the theory that the scientific establishment would have us to think. In fact, there are a lot of scientists, both Christian and atheists, who have serious objections to the evolutionary theory, at least as it stands right now. There are major gaps in the theory that are unexplained, and there are aspects of the theory that actually contradict other established principles of science. And of course, if you press on that, then they'll say, well, you know, we don't have enough information to understand exactly how this happened. To which I would reply that if that's the case, you should be a little less dogmatic and condescending towards other people who don't buy into what you're selling. On the other hand, there are many credentialed scientists who say that the evidence actually supports what the Bible says about the origins of our world. And so here's the deal, which is really where I want to land on this particular point. As Christians, we believe that the Bible is absolutely true in everything that it says. And we also believe that the physical world can be studied and understood accurately. Right? The law of gravity is not in the Bible, but we believe that it's true. Right? So we, we believe in, in, in common grace, uh, as they would say in systematic theology. And so consequently, we believe that there will be an agreement between what the Bible actually says and what physical science actually reveals. They will not contradict each other. They will agree. Of course, the the key there is that you have to have an accurate interpretation of the Bible, and you have to have an accurate interpretation of the scientific evidence. You have to have both of those, because you can misinterpret the Bible, or you can misinterpret the scientific evidence. You can misinterpret the Bible... And you can say that the the sun revolves around the earth, and you can put Galileo in jail like they did in the 16th century. You can also misinterpret the scientific evidence and tell people that smoking cigarettes is good for them, like they did in the early 20th century. Either way, the results are not good. And so I want to be clear. I have no patience at all for pastors who say, don't ask questions, just believe. I want no part of that, because I believe that the Bible can stand up to any questions or scrutiny that anyone puts up against it. But I also have no patience for atheists who wage ideological wars on people of faith that that, that are are based on claims that simply cannot be substantiated. And so we could go on, This, this, to use a scientific term, this topic is a black hole that you can go down into and never come back up from. 
Um, and there are tons of resources, more than you could ever read, that go into this in far more detail that I would be glad to point you to if you're interested in studying more. My main concern here is that we do not allow someone to buffalo us into feeling intellectually inferior because we affirm what the Bible says about the origins of the world. Right, the alternative is not nearly as credible as they would like to say it is, and putting their fingers in the ear and saying that it is over and over doesn't make it so. And so uh, there are any uh, <clears throat> number of beliefs that Genesis opposes, but then there are also a number of things that Genesis affirms, particularly about God. First of all, Genesis 1 shows us that God is eternal. He is timeless. Right, the very first words of the Bible are, in the beginning... And yet, in the beginning, God is already there. Right? And so, as, as finite human beings, the concept of eternity goes beyond our ability to comprehend, but it is the clear testimony, consistent testimony, of Scripture. And so, in Psalm 90, verse 2, Moses writes, Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. God has always been and he always will be. Secondly, I think Genesis 1 shows us that there is more to God than we might realize at first. And what I mean by that is that, is that here in the opening chapter of the Bible, we already get a sense of God's triune nature. And so at the end of verse 2, the Spirit of God hovers over the face of the waters. Moses doesn't say that God hovered. He says the Spirit of God hovered. Now, obviously, we're talking about God, and yet there's a distinction that is being made here that is worth uh, looking at. Uh, it's interesting that the word that, that is used for God here is plural, and so it would actually properly be translated as gods if it wasn't for the fact that the verb to create is singular. He created. And so there's this tension between a plurality and a singularity here. And then in the creation of humans in verse 26, God refers to himself as us and our. And so again, on some level, Genesis 1 reveals that God is outwardly singular and yet inwardly plural. And, and to be clear, I'm not trying to claim that Moses had a fully uh, developed understanding of the Trinity. But what I am saying is that it would appear that under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Moses records the creation of the world in such a way that provides hints. It plants seeds that over time grow and develop into a fully formed understanding of God when we get to the New Testament. All right, there, in John 1, for example, we find that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. And of course, later on, we read that the word became flesh and dwelt among us in the person of Jesus. And so we see here already that there is more to God than we might realize at first. Then finally, speaking of God's word in Genesis 1, we see the power of of God's word, as God uses his word to speak creation and the universe into existence. Right, the consistent testimony of scripture is that God always works through his word. And that's just another reason why we as individual Christians and as a church as a whole need to devote ourselves to God's word. 
The truth is that we will experience God's blessing in our lives as we conform every aspect of our lives to his revealed design in his word. God created us, and he knows how we're supposed to function. And when we follow his design, things work better that way. And so we could go on and on, but the opening of Genesis reveals a loving God who created this universe to share his goodness with creation. And even though it is no longer today what it once was, and we're going to get into that in a couple of weeks, it it really is still breathtaking to behold if you get out of southeast Texas. God has, has, has given us so many blessings, friends and family, good food to eat, adventures to go on, and so much more. And this God is worthy of our love, of our devotion and our obedience. And so as we read about our Creator this morning, let's acknowledge Him and worship Him in holy reverence. Let's pray together. Father, as always, we are grateful for your word, and as we open up a new study through the book of Genesis, we praise you for the fact that that we are fearfully and wonderfully made, that, Father, you, by your spoken word, have created everything that exists, that, Father, you've given us life and the opportunity to enjoy your creation, and, and more so you, Father, that you've made us in your likeness so that we can have a relationship with you. Lord, as as we could sit here with the implications of the opening passage of Genesis, Father, we're just thankful for the fact that you have revealed yourself to us so that we can know the truth. Father, I pray that we would have uh, a, a desire to obey the truth, that we would have courage to stand for the truth. And that, Lord, you would, you would cause us to have a fresh amazement at who you are and what you've done in this world. And so, Father, as we take time to respond this morning, I pray that you would lead us to respond in line with your word. And it's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. Amen.